I'm Father Mitch Packer, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God in both its written form and its oral form. And today, we will continue through my book, Wheat and Tares, looking at the trial of Jesus, especially taking a look at the verdict of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. This will deal with a couple of issues, legal procedural discrepancies that Caiaphas and the others in the Sanhedrin conveniently ignored in order to get a quick conviction. And so that'll be our topic today. Now, of course, if you have any questions relate or, or comments related specifically to today's topic, we invite you to be a part of the show. You can do so either by some of these nice people here being part of our uh, studio audience, or you can call us at 1-800-221-9460. If you're in North America, it's 800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call, but the number the 800 number won't work, so you can call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980, 205-271-2980, or send an email to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or you can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Um, we are, just before we go th through today's topic, I just want to mention, I uh, have a little cast on, um, apparently so does Cowboy Santa, he's got his ailments, I have mine, um, slipped in some snow and broke my leg, so I fractured, it's not real bad, but um, bad enough to sort of have to keep sitting. So that's what we're doing here today. So in case anybody asks, that's all that's going, and it's getting better each day. All right, now, as I mentioned earlier, we are going through my book, Wheat and Tares, uh, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. And you can get this at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com ewtnrc.com, where it is item number 81098. Today, if you're following with us in the book, you already have it, we are starting today's discussion on page 112. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Um, this section deals with the verdict on Jesus. We've been talking about various aspects of our Lord's trial. And here we, we see the verdict. We'll begin with um, the, the Jesus having said, you know, a member of Caiaphas had said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the son of the living God or not. And he said, you have said it. And at that point, 
you see that the high priest tore his robes. Now, this is a very ancient way to show extreme grief. And a good example of that would be in Genesis 37, verse 29 and 34, when Reuben, one of the sons of uh, Israel, returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he rent his clothes. And then later Jacob, Israel himself, rent his garments and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. So that's one example. There are lots and lots of others uh, in Numbers, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Ezra, Job, Jeremiah. All, frequently people in the Old Testament would um, d do that. But there's more to it than just this traditional sense of grief. I've mentioned to you a number of times a book called the Mishnah, Mishnah. And this is a collection of the sayings of various rabbis from about 135 BC all the way through 200 AD. So it covers about 335 years or so. And we see in the Mishnah, uh, that, rather the Mishnah is divided up into different tractates dealing with various topics. One of those tractates is called Sanhedrin. And in Sanhedrin 7, it says that Rabbi Yehoshua ben Korcha said, on every day of a blasphemer's trial, when the judges interrogate the witnesses, the judges interrogate the eldest of the witnesses and say to him, say what you heard explicitly. And he says exactly what he heard. And the judges stand on their feet and make a tear in their garments as an act of mourning for the desecration of the honor of God. And they do not ever fully stitch it back together again. So this is uh, something that is explicitly required in the rabbinic tradition uh, for somebody who committed blasphemy, and that's why the high priest tears his garments when he hears Jesus accept what the high priest had said about Christ being the Son of God. And then we see that the high priest followed that. This is in Matthew 26, verse 65. He follows with it. After he tore his robes, he said, He has uttered blasphemy. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. It's you, plural, that is, all the other people. And... One of the issues about mentioning why do we need, um, you know, witnesses, it's uh, because if you recall, we said the witnesses did not agree in their testimony. They were perjuring themselves, which was a, actually not only a very serious sin 
a sin against the Eighth Commandment, but also something that was a crime, as it is in our society. We still have that perjury in a trial is a crime. And at that point, um, the Sanhedrin answered in verse 66, he deserves death. That's their, that's their uh, verdict and the, the sentence at the same time. Now, pay attention to that. He deserves death. All right, we'll come back to that in a minute, but just remember that phrase and we'll continue on from there. Now, there's a certain procedural problem that comes up in the trial, and this is also from the Mishnah, the Tractate Sanhedrin, and it's in four, uh, Sanhedrin 4, uh, verse 1, where it says, In cases of monetary law, all those present at the trial may teach a reason to exempt a litigant or to find him liable. In cases of capital law, all those present at the trial may teach a reason to acquit the accused, but not all present may teach a reason to find him liable. Only the judges can teach a reason to find him liable. And this principle was not followed in our Lord's trial. There were, uh, they should not have all said he deserves death, but they did. And they're not supposed to give that verdict together. Only the select judges were supposed to do that. But this is something that, you know, is uh, part of the problem that goes on in our Lord's trial. Uh, there are a number of legal issues, and again, we're going to come back to that. Now, there's also a, a principle um, that a unanimous verdict to condemn a criminal, the final decision had to be postponed in order to search for other witnesses to make sure there was no miscarriage of justice. Jewish legal procedure required care to prevent a, an execution of an innocent person because when you execute somebody and they're innocent, you can't take it back. You can't let them out of prison. If they go to prison, and later you find out that they're innocent, then you can let them out and even give them some compensation, as difficult as prison would be. But when you find out um, that they're innocent and they've already been executed, you can't undo it. So Jewish legal procedure was extremely careful not to do it. And instead of postponing the final decision, after the guilty verdict, they give the, the condemnation and say that he deserves death right away. That is another procedural failure. 
Now, this is something that we have to then analyze a little bit about what's going on here and to do so from the perspective of Old and New Testament. First, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed to fulfill prophecies in the book of Daniel. That's one of the things. And <clears throat> by fulfilling the prophecies in Daniel 7 in particular, um, giving him the death penalty would be a way to get rid of Jesus and the problem that his actions had caused and the problem made by his claims and his words and his teaching. So this is one of the things. But here's the irony. While they want to get rid of him for claiming to fulfill Daniel 7, they end up fulfilling other prophecies themselves, despite themselves. This is a very important element here because we see that uh, the Old Testament is going to be cited again and again throughout our Lord's trial. There will be uh, all sorts of ways that we, we see the Old Testament being fulfilled by what happens to Jesus as well as by his own words. And the, this, this way of understanding the sufferings of Jesus um, and the actions of Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate and Herod and the soldiers and the crowds would all work together, again, without them trying at all to fulfill the Old Testament, all of them will take part in making the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus come true. So while they accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he claims to be fulfilling a prophecy, their very actions will help fulfill even more prophecies. This is one of the great ironies of all this. And it brings out a very important point all of us need to understand, that God's will and God's word get effected. They work out whether we understand that we're fulfilling them or not. Even when we are going against God, we can end up fulfilling things that he told us and said to us. This is a very basic principle. Now, at this point, we see a little change in the action. After the verdict has been given and these problems show up, we see the mockery of Jesus resume. So the, the Sanhedrin certainly believed they had Jesus under their total control. Hey, that's their assumption. And that's why they began to abuse him physically and verbally. So it says in Matthew 26, verse 67, 
Then they spat in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. So there, there's hitting him and spitting. And um, we tend not to use spitting at somebody as a way to show contempt. But in the Middle East, that still goes on. If somebody wants, uh, you know, um, I, I've been in a, a, a neighborhood called Meashe'arim, and just walking on the edge of it, and um, if somebody walks by, you know, uh, and these are ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish people, um, you know, walking, I was walking next to some women from a group, and uh, they, the, the men standing on the sidewalk would turn their head and spit. You know, that, that they thought it was wrong for a man and a woman walk next to each other. They try to show modesty and live out a modest way of life by having the men and women very separate so that nothing unseemly would happen in public. But this is um, that, that use of spitting. And then, um, you know, this is, uh, it's no, you don't need to explain how hitting somebody, especially a bound prisoner, is very insulting and, and also very cruel. And then we also see that uh, as they strike him, the uh, priest, uh, the, so some of the soldiers say, prophesy, who struck you? You know, that, these kind of things. Now, all of this fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, when it says about the suffering servant of the Lord, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pulled my beard. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So again, they, they weren't doing this in order to say, yeah, let's Let's try and fulfill a prophecy. They believed that he was blaspheming when he said he filled the prophecy. So they're not trying to fulfill that word from Isaiah, but they did anyway. And then we also see in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, where he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That that kind of rejection of Christ is going on here as well. And again, it's in that context that that verse in Matthew 26, verse 68, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And it just points out, on one hand, that they don't know that he had already prophesied to his disciples that they would be doing these things to him, and they fulfilled both the prophecies that Christ had made about what their behavior was, and they were fulfilling the ancient prophecies. That's, again, 
the irony of this, that they, Jesus had prophesied this, they didn't know it, and they fulfilled it. Isaiah had prophesied it, they didn't connect it, but they fulfilled it. And in doing this, they are part of the redemption of the world. They play a role. They may have eventually lived to rue that, taking part in that, but that's what they did. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back and continue on with more about this trial, so please stay with us. Welcome back. We are taking a look at the, our Lord's trial by the Sanhedrin. We're finishing that up today. And we are, we have to take a look at a couple other anomalies that go on here. It says, uh, uh, or well, we'll get to what it says in Matthew 27, but it's very important to note that Jewish law did not allow for a trial to take place at night. A trial, especially a capital crime trial, needed to be to take place during the daytime so that the public would be able to know about it and that all the evidence and correct judicial procedure could be guaranteed. Now, we, we have the same thing. I mean, you can go to night court, um, you know, if you get a traffic violation or get arrested at night, and they can arraign you. But a trial has to be a public uh, experience. That it's, it's, you know, secret trials are against our Constitution and, that, uh, and our state laws and local laws because of the, the same kind of issue, that you have to be able to have your accuser and your evidence brought out in the public. So that's uh, something that was another anomaly in our Lord's trial. That's why to, it seems that in order to keep the letter of the law, um, well, actually going against its actual purpose, the condemnation of Jesus was decreed in the following morning. Take a look at a little detail in Matthew 27, verses 1 to 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So this, they wait until morning before they make the official declaration of 
the uh, trial. And this phrase, to take counsel, is a technical term. Uh, it, it means reach an official decision, um, and, uh, and, and it's distinct from the pre-material pre from the uh, night before. And one of the things is that uh, because the trial had been at night, um, they were, again, going against Sanhedrin 4-1, um, where it says in cases of monetary law, the judges during the daytime, uh, uh, the, the court judges during the daytime and may conclude deliberations and issue and the ruling even at night. In cases of capital law, the, the court judges during the daytime and concludes the deliberations and issues the ruling only in the daytime. So if it was a money case, that would be one thing. But if it's monetary, uh, that, that's okay if it's money. But if it's a capital case, it must be in the daytime. So that's something that's very important for them. Uh, in Sanhedrin, Mishnah, uh, 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 Mishnah uh, Tractate Sanhedrin 4. So technically, Jesus was condemned to death in the morning, um, even though all the procedures had taken place at night. And um, this was uh, a major problem. Once they decreed that death penalty, they led Jesus to Pilate. And in doing this, they also fulfilled Jesus' earlier prophecy from the third time he predicted the passion. Uh, Matthew 20, take a look there, verses 18 to 19. When Jesus said to the apostles, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So even the detail that while he will be condemned uh, by the chief priests and scribes, uh, they will condemn him to death. They will also hand him over to the Gentiles, that is, to Pontius Pilate. And this is meant to show that Christ was fulfilling a prophecy that he had made and he had the ability to prophesy. He is not a false prophet. He is a prophet that speaks the truth. Remember in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, one of the criteria for whether a prophet was true or false is whether their prophecy came true. If it came true, then it was a true prophet. That's one of the other elements brought, being brought out here. And we also see that the uh, Sanhedrin and the high priests are contradicting themselves. They had earlier made a decision not to arrest Jesus during the Passover, but they seized the opportunity and arrested him just before the morning before the Passover began, according to the Pharisee and Sadducee calendar. 
Remember, we talked about that with the Last Supper a long time ago. You might have forgotten that the Essenes started Passover every year on a Wednesday. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees used a lunar calendar, so their date varied. The Essenes always had it on, you know, they had a solar calendar, so it would always be on the same day of the week. It was always on a Wednesday, no matter what. So that's one of the things that was going on. Um, and they go ahead and arrest Jesus right before their Passover begins. This means that Jesus, our Lord, is going to show himself to be far more in charge of these events than are they. In all of this, the way that he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, which as the word of God ultimately comes from Jesus. He is the word made flesh. Well, all the other words of the Old Testament ultimately come from him. And so he's fulfilling his own word. And he also made prophecies during the public ministry and they're coming true. And this is a way to show that in his divinity, as well, of course, in living out in his humanity, he is in charge of what's going on. He looks weak. He looks vulnerable. But in fact, he is still the Lord of the situation. And this often is very difficult for us to understand when life is difficult. When we find life to be very hard and it seems out of control, it's hard to recognize that God still can have the world and our situation under his control. So this is something that as we look at our Lord going through his trial and the rest of his passion, we can see that what looks like apparent failure, in fact, is not. He remains in control. So we'll, we'll stop there. And next program, we'll contrast this with the way that Judas Iscariot is out of control and not in God's order. And his decision to let Satan in would put him into another level of mess. That, so we'll talk about that next time. Now we'll take a look at some of the questions we have. And we have one question from our studio audience. Father, where are you from? Hi, Father Mitch. I'm Father Alex Harb. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at St. Charbel Maronite Church, new church there in Baton Rouge. Right, right. And actually, I've known you since you were a little kid. <laughs> kids yes. grow up so fast. But at any rate, uh, good to have you here. And please give your family my greetings. What, what do you have as a question? So I had a question about the ritual purity laws mm -hmm. um, of the high priest, mm -hmm. uh, that the, it seemed like the, the high priest wasn't allowed to um, rip or tear his garment, mm -hmm. and yet this document in the Mishnah you were saying that, that he was allowed, that, right. that, they, that they were required to do it at right. certain points. So I wanted to 
see how you reconcile what's the difference? Those. What's the difference? You're referring to the passage about ritual, the priest's ritual purity in Leviticus? Leviticus, uh, yes, Leviticus 21, verse mm -hmm. 10. That, yeah, that's, you had mentioned that. And here's something. Um, it, it said um, in verse 10, the verse that you're talking about, um, the priest who is chief among his brethren, so the chief priest, uh, upon whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor rend his clothes. And the sentence continues in the next verse. He shall not go into any dead body nor defile himself, even for his father or his mother, neither shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of, the, of his God, for the consecration of the anointing of his God is upon him and the Lord. This is um, uh, something that refers to the funeral rites. When somebody died, the mourners tear their clothes. They'll, they'll make a tear in their clothes. And uh, in fact, in today's uh, practice, it's fairly common that Jewish mourners will have a piece of cloth that they tear and then they pin onto their own clothes, their regular clothes, their suit or dress or whatever they're wearing. And that will be the sign of mourning. But the high priest was not allowed to come to even his own parents' funeral because uh, if you, there's a line that our Lord Jesus uses in the Gospels when he says, um, you know, our God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And he proves it from the Lord saying, I'm the God of the Lord, the God of Isaac, uh, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So the idea in Israelite religion is that death may not be included within worship. So, for instance, they would never have a funeral inside the temple. That would be, you can't bring a dead body into the temple. That would be absolutely forbidden. And the priest can't go because it would defile him. And it basically could remove him from being a priest. So he has to say, his goodbyes. And in fact, if he even touches a corpse, he would be unclean. He could go to the mikvah and have a ritual bath, but you know, even to touch a corpse would make him unclean. And certainly he can't go to a funeral. Whereas in the case of Caiaphas, the high priest, um, rending his garments, it's not out of mourning the dead, but it's in the case of a specific type of trial, namely a trial against blasphemy. And this is something that I, I uh, a different situation. So he's not going to a funeral. 
he wouldn't be making himself unclean. But the for prohibition against tearing his garment refers to the funeral rites, along with letting his hair down and all this. And sometimes they would gash themselves. That's why uh, Jewish men don't cut the hair right that comes from their temple. Uh, they let that grow long, even if the rest of the hair is short, because there's a law against that in, in the Bible, because that was done by the pagans in mourning and they would gash themselves and bleed so to show sorrow. Jews cannot do that kind of thing. They, they show respect for the dead uh, and pray for them, but you know, this is not something that uh, they can do in funerals. Caiaphas was in another situation, a trial, where he had to do that. All right, we now have Tess in Oregon. Tess, what can we do for you? Well, I'm calling in desperation. I am homebound. About four years ago, I started having strokes, and the priest mm. came to my house and visited me, and you could call, and you could leave a message for them. He got moved somewhere else. There's two big churches here. Uh, if you try to call the office, if you want to talk to somebody, so you have to have a computer or some electronic device and cell phones and leave an email or some things. I don't even know what they call them and gotten to get even anybody back. And it's, it's just, I cannot get anybody. I haven't been to church since probably Christmas last year. I couldn't mm -hmm. get anybody to. So why, why in this electronic, um, you know, this electronic age, I, I, I need be able to right, right. Um, what part of Oregon are you in? I'm here. I guess we've got two new priests, and I don't know. Well, I've gotten nowhere trying to contract them. Yeah, where in where in Oregon are you? I'm in Coos Bay, North Bend. Okay, all right. I tell you what. Um, I I'm very sorry that that's happened to you. And I'm sure they tried to use the electronic media to make it easier to contact people, but not everybody uses it. So um, leave, don't mention your phone number now, but leave your phone number with uh, the, the, the person that screened your call and we'll see if we can make contact with somebody over in Oregon to get hold of you. We'll try to do our best to do that, okay? Um, I have a friend uh, over in Oregon, uh, and he may be able to, he, he's not near Bend, but he's in another part of the state, but he knows somebody down there. So I'll see what we can do on that, okay? I'm so sorry, and I, you know, uh, I, I I know uh, as a fairly busy priest and that the other priests are also really busy. Uh, and sometimes it's not so much of, um, you know, being neglectful, but some things just get in between the cracks and, you know, so we just have to find other ways to get there to do that. So we'll see what we can do for you, Tess. God bless you. I'm going to take a break, and we'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. 
Well, before we go back to our questions and such, first of all, I'd like to make sure that you join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with three Australians, Sharbel Reich, who's been on the program before, Dr. Robert Haddad, and Kevin Bailey. And our topic is going to be, how can we stand strong against the secular culture and not be led astray by the wokeness of our society? but instead be awake in Christ and strengthen our relationship with Him in order to deal with the culture. You know, and uh, I, I think this is becoming more and more clear when you take a look at, well, just would ask you to do this. Take a look at the woke movement what has that really done to help people? There are a lot of things that you have to ask that about. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But be ready for that when we get to tomorrow's show. All right, I'm going to start off with um, an email from Ron. It says, Hello, Father Mitch. With these readings that show Jesus was the fulfillment of the Scripture, why do you think the Jewish people still don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah? Since there haven't been any new prophets for over 2,000 years and the temple has never been rebuilt, as Jesus fills both of these. Ron in Cassopolis, Michigan. Um, there are a number of things. Um, first of all, uh, you know, a lot of times... Uh, Jewish people don't even know much, the rabbis do, but most of the folks don't know much about Isaiah 53, yep. that prophecy about the suffering Messiah, suffering servant of the Lord. Um, they're not familiar with it, and the, one of the reasons was in the year 85 A.D., that passage was removed from the lectionary uh, uh, at the synagogues, that it was not to be read, lest people hear it and start thinking about the Christians. That's, uh, they call them the menim. Um, so that's one issue. Um, another issue that I think is very, very important, and uh, not only, not known some of these prophecies and such. Some would say that, well, you still have suffering and pain in the world. We believe that when the Messiah comes, all that will be gone. Okay, that's, that's another objection. A third objection is one that we have to take to heart. And especially these days, you know, over the centuries, Jewish people have experienced a lot of suffering at the hands of Christians. Now, there were times when Christians suffered at the hands of Jewish people. Uh, certainly the persecution in 36, uh, in 613, uh, when the Persians invaded the Holy Land, uh, 
Jewish people helped the Persians in persecuting the Christians, putting many to death. But those are really a few episodes that have happened in history, and they're pretty rare. Whereas Christian mistreatment of Jewish people has been much more common. And it is a scandal, a terrible scandal. And so this is not something that is at all acceptable. And when you, when you get to know Jewish people who feel the, 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 the hurt, the pain, and the agony of having been persecuted for their Jewish faith by Christians, Christians who have called Jews Christ killers and pushed all kinds of stupid conspiracy theories like the protocols of the elders of Zion and other evils, then you can see why they would say, I, you know, if they're trying to force us, um, maybe there's no truth in what they say. Who would trust uh, prophecies that are forced upon you? It's not right. And today, I, I'd say things are a bit different. Um, I, I would see at this point, it's much more uh, obvious anger from Middle Eastern people, from, from especially uh, Palestinians. Uh, you know, there's a tension there to be sure. Um, and yet, but there's also a tension between the secular left the, 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 far, the, the progressive left politics is at this, they used to be very pro-Israeli, now they're very anti-Israeli. Um, and some of it is not just disagreement on uh, the policy of the state of Israel, but also just some outright hatred that's wicked. It's just evil. And, um, you know, the, the kind of things that they don't question on. Um, now that, but that's secular people. The, the Nazis were, you know, socialist uh, movement and nationalistic. Uh, that wasn't a Christian thing, but sometimes that's blamed on Christianity. Uh, but those kind of issues of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, uh, have to be examined and, you know, we have to stand up against that. Uh, you know, we can't undo the past, um, but we can stand up in the present and perhaps engage in serious dialogue as the church has really been doing, uh, you know, and needs to do more of, uh, especially since the terrible experience of Jewish people in World War II. Okay. So I think those are what I would put to the three reasons. We have another question from our studio audience. What can we possibly do for you? Hi, Father Mitch. Uh, well, my question is, uh, when we brought up the Mishnah, you mentioned that it was published, it started being published before the time of Christ, and it finished being published after the mm -hmm. time of Christ. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if if we know for sure that the passages that you were referencing, if we know for sure that those were written and promulgated before the time of Christ so that they would have been binding mm -hmm. during his mm -hmm. trial. 
excellent uh, question. The um, Mishnah was primarily oral tradition rather than publicate, uh, published. It was passed on by the rabbis. And so the way we can tell the age is by knowing something about the lifetime of the individual rabbis. Uh, I, I don't have that kind of chart of the, the, the period in which they lived, but that's what we do. Um, you know, so that's, the, that's uh, what scholars do when they study Mishnah. They take, and Talmud as well, they take a look at the, uh, the datable uh, rabbis and we put it, and these would be from the, the time uh, of Christ. These would be prior to that, okay? uh, rather than later. Uh, as a matter of fact, they assume this, the still existence of the temple and the priesthood being in charge. I have another email. This is from JT who says, Father Mitch, even as a cradle Catholic, I never understood why there are two judgments. Once you die and do any time as needed in purgatory, you're off to heaven, right? Right. So what is the second big final judgment for? Do they dig up your past sins and expose everyone to them after you've already been cleared for takeoff? This guy must be a pilot. Uh, or is this only for people who are still on earth when the end times come? JT in Michigan. JT, this is for everybody at the final judgment. Why? Uh, it's a very important thing. You know, if it's not just about dredging up your past sins, there's another element from it, namely that your good works are also known. And if you look at the, um, the, the first judgment is the judgment for you as an individual and it deals with all that you did. But the reality of our behavior is that it frequently continues on after death. Your evil deeds and your good deeds can have an effect on people after you died. So bringing up what, what Hitler did, uh, or Stalin, or uh, Mao Zedong, all, you know, that, that couple hundred million people that those dictators executed in genocides, all of their descendants are dead. And we don't know, uh, you know, what they could have accomplished so that the effects of their deeds and of everybody who participated in those genocides, that is only made known at the end of the world. Whereas the good that was done by somebody like Mother Teresa of Calcutta or any of the saints in history, that good also continues after their life so that, you know, what her sisters continue to do, inspired by uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, also will be only known at the end of time. The end of time is when the story is finally over.
and the effects of our behaviors are fully known. And that's why there's a judgment at the end time, because it'll show you and the rest of the world the final results of the good you did and the evil you did. And then comes the resurrection, okay? All right. Well, look, we are out of time, I'm afraid. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he lead you in all of your ways by his peace. The Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, you know, at this time where people are very, very generous, um, we would ask you to remember EWTN as well. Uh, it's a tough time economically, I know, and Christmas is going to be slim for a lot of people. But if you can help us out, please remember that the network is brought to you by you, keeping us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and cable bill. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to organize this network, and we depend on you. God bless you for your generosity and keep you all.